Good to be with you. My name is uh, Andrew. People call me Hazy. And uh, I'll pray as we look at God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you say in your Word that it is a sharp two-edged sword, that it, it divides soul and spirit, that as we read it, it reads us. And so we pray, please, that tonight you give us soft hearts and uh, open minds, energy to listen after a big and great weekend. Um, and we pray that you would change us by your word, that you'd grant us faith where we need that, repentance where that's lacking, and that you'd uh, use this word to put concrete into our Christian lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you know what a secret shopper is? A shop or a restaurant can hire one to visit secretly and then give feedback. I wonder if you know that there's a church version of that. In America, at least, you can pay for a secret visitor to come, and, and one uh, promises this on their website, a report back scoring you on factors including your services, your buildings, your music, and parking. All the important things. Now, I think it comes from a good place, doesn't it? Churches want to see people come to know Jesus, come to know salvation and, and eternal life. And sometimes you do get so used to doing the things that you do that you just get blind to it. You end up with blind spots. Now, I don't, as to my knowledge, we've never hired mystery shoppers here at church. Um, if you are one and you're here, welcome. <laughs> I hope you're having a great night. No, if you, if you are new, if you've been brought along or you've just come along, we're, we're so glad you're here. We really do want you to know um, that we love you and we want you to find the hope that we've found in Jesus. But have you ever had this thought? What if Jesus decided to show up as a mystery shopper? one of his churches what if he decided to come here tonight what would he think nothing matters more for a church that's right isn't it the whole point of christianity is christ it's in the name he's the lord and we are his church the goal is it's not to be get a pat on the back from our culture or politicians or the media Everyone has an opinion on what churches should be doing. But our goal is not to be pleasing them, it's to please Jesus. That defines success for a church, doesn't it? If what we're doing tonight doesn't please Jesus, it would actually be better if we all just got up and went home. And so think for a moment, what would Jesus think of us? What would he even be looking for in his mystery shopping trip? We've just read from the book of Revelation, a book that very early on, chapters 2 and 3 contains seven letters from Jesus to seven of his churches, where he tells them what he thinks of them. So you can see it in your Bible, chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. Chapter 2, verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Who's that? Who's the one who died and rose? It's Jesus. There you go. Easy question. Uh, each letter uh, begins with a different description of Jesus, but it's Jesus every time. See it again, chapter 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God. Tonight, we're going to look at what Jesus said to these churches, which were seven real churches at the time the Apostle John was writing this, late in the first century. We've got a map here, scattered around the area that John was um, exiled. He was on the island of Patmos. You can see it there in the red. 
Um, every other disciple was killed for their testimony of what they saw. Jesus raised John, he got to live on a Greek island. That was his punishment. Um, doesn't sound too bad. But as we read these churches' mail tonight, which is a crime, by the way, in our society, it will give us insight into what Jesus might say to us. Now, normally what we do as a church, if you're new, we, we go through the Bible bit by bit. So this sermon, we just finished the book of Genesis. In the holidays, sometimes we do something different, maybe a sermon on a particular topic. But I knew that I'm in danger of a nickname, Topical Hazy. And so as I'm not doing a topic, and actually next term we're going to do a whole term of topics. In fact, one topic, the, one of the greatest topics, salvation. And so I look forward to that. But given that we've got all these topics coming up, we thought, let's not do a topic. Let's just pick a passage to look at, and I've chosen this one. Chapter 3, verse 7 to 13. Jesus led to the Philadelphians. Uh, not the American city, Philadelphia. Uh, the ancient one, and I assume the American one's named after it, but I didn't check. Now, why have I chosen this passage? Two reasons. Number one, these letters are some of the most encouraging and challenging parts of all of Scripture. So they're easy to preach. They, they really just preach themselves. But the other reason is I've got to preach on this passage at another church soon. And so I thought I might as well try it on you guys first. But let me go back to the first reason. These are among the most encouraging and challenging pages in all of Scripture. The book of, um, of Revelation, it's got a reputation problem. Well, maybe not a problem, maybe it's accurate. What's its reputation? Hard, that's right. And it is, in parts, because of the style of writing. Revelation is written in a style called apocalyptic that uses a lot of symbolic language. Um, and so I'll give you an example, chapter 1, the second half. From verse 12 onwards, John's describing a vision that he's had of Jesus. And it's packed with apocalyptic imagery, symbolic language. And he's doing that, Jesus has given him this vision, to give him a, a, a sense of the sheer, awe-inspiring majesty of this one Jesus. So verse 16, In his right hand he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Does Jesus really have a sword for a tongue? No. It's speaking of the power of his word. His word that creates worlds and conquers enemies and saves sinners. And so right out of the gate, the book of Revelation says, don't underestimate the one these letters are from. He's not a dead carpenter. He's the one who, verse 17, is the first and the last, the living one. He's alive right now and forever the Lord of the universe. And so Revelation is, is filled with this kind of um, apocalyptic language and that does make it hard to read. Now, some people, by the way, think the whole Bible is like that. It's symbolic, you've got to decode it. There's not, if you, if you actually take the time to read it, it's mostly not like that at all. But that, anyway, that's why people find Revelation hard. But it's also why lots of people who find Revelation hard still really love these letters because they're much more straightforward and punchy. For example, have a look at chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus says to this church, the Laodiceans, this is the harshest of all the letters, or severe is probably sternest, is more the word. Verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, spiritually speaking. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, 
but you don't realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. And so verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Be earnest and repent. Now that is, that's crystal clear, isn't it, what it's saying? If you are lukewarm as a Christian, if you're half-hearted, that's not halfway there, that's, that's awful to Jesus. It makes him sick. You, you might seem rich and secure and self-sufficient outwardly, but you're actually in great spiritual danger. He'll spit you out, that he won't have you, because Jesus is not after halfway Christians. And so in love, he calls you, if, if that's you, and if that's you tonight, he calls you to repent. Go all in. Now, there's one of the challenges. But there's equally encouragements, just as clear and powerful, and we'll see some tonight. Now, there you go, clear, punchy, powerful, but there is some apocalyptic language mixed in, and so we're going to have to do some work at points as we look at this, this letter to the Philadelphians. Uh, but it's not just a guessing game. If you know your Old Testament well, lots of the apocalyptic symbols are just big themes from the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. And also, if you pay attention, quite often it'll tell you. So have a look at this. Chapter 1, verse 12. John turns to see the voice that's speaking to him in his vision. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe. Seven golden lampstands. What's that all about? Well, it actually tells you. Come down to verse 20. The mystery of the, of the seven stars you saw on my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So you see this symbolic picture language, but then it tells you what it means. Jesus is among these seven lampstands. What is that communicating? Jesus is among his churches. He hasn't flown off in his private jet. No, he's still with us by his spirit. And so actually what I said at the start, imagine if Jesus came to church this week, that's, that's a bit misleading, isn't it? He did. He does every week. Jesus, chapter 2, verse 1, walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus walked among his churches. Not the, not the building, the word church in the Bible is not about the building, it refers to the people. He says, Matthew chapter... Is it 19? There you go, call me out. It says in Matthew, when two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. Imagine you're in the foyer um, before or after church and you're talking to someone. You're using those um, sweet social skills that you picked up on every night, weekend away. Thanks, Steve. I think that was mostly for me. Um, and you're thinking as you talk to this person... You continue the conversation, you're asking the questions, you're sharing a bit. You're thinking, this person seems familiar. I reckon I know him from somewhere. And then suddenly you realise, oh, I think this is Jesus. And you start replaying the conversation in your head. What have I said? Was it okay? Well, the thing is, he is here in the foyer every week. He's in here as we sing to him, as we, as we pray and talk about him. If you let that drop, how would that change the way that you approach church? If you remember 
that every week you come to meet, yes, with the Lord's people, but also, more than that, with the Lord himself. Yes, he's, he's with you always, but especially when we gather. In fact, that's what church is, the gathering of the Lord's people around the Lord who is present among us by his spirit and his word. And so he sees us. Now notice this, in all the letters, he says the phrase, I know. Very striking. In fact, there's a pattern in these letters, I'll get it up on the screen. You get, first of all, Jesus is described, the words of the one who, and so chapter 3, verse 7, the words of the one who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, we'll come back to that. But then it gives a series of encouragements or rebukes, and it starts with the words, I know. I know this about you. I know this, your circumstances, some of them. I know your actions. I know, Jesus says in some of them, your true, your, your true spiritual condition. So in this pattern, he encourages them for what they're doing well and he calls them out for what they're not. Now, I remember when this truth first dropped for me, I was on a university Christian group annual conference, similar to Even Night Weekend Away, and, and something in the talk, it just dawned on me in a new way that Jesus is alive right now, watching. I think I'd been convinced of Jesus as a historical figure. I'd even been convinced of Je- the truth of Jesus as a, as a, and the truth of his claims, but somehow it was still kind of just a concept to me. And then it dropped. He's not just an idea. He's not just a historical figure from the past. He's alive right now, watching and listening, and he's got thoughts. I wonder if you find that idea encouraging or scary. The encouragement is this. Whatever you do for him, he sees it. And he's pleased He smiles. Chapter 2, verse 2. Listen to this. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. It's not wasted, your struggle against sin, your efforts to serve others. Even if no one else seems to notice, Jesus says, I see it. He sees your efforts to stay, to stay focused on his word in a sermon after a big weekend and not drift off, not think about next week. He sees when you go out of your way in the foyer to, to love someone, to say the word of encouragement. And you say, oh, but it all just seems so imperfect, so full of sin and weakness. And yeah, well, he knows all of that too. And if you're his, he's forgiven you of all of that. And now he's just pleased. Every time you do something for him. What an encouragement to keep living for him. Encouragement. But it's scary as well, isn't it? Because he sees all the times that you don't even try. And you can fool others, but you can't fool him. Chapter 3, verse 1. And so we need to pay attention to what he says in these letters because they're not just to those churches. Notice how he finishes every letter. Chapter 3, verse 13. Whoever has ears, you got ears? It's for you. If you don't have ears, I think you probably still include you. Um, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the, not to the church in Philadelphia, but to the, have a look, 
To the churches. That's my dad. Hey, dad. These are to all of us. And that's why there are seven of them. In apocalyptic writing, the number seven means, does anyone know? Yeah, completeness, fullness, that's right. And so why seven churches? It's to symbolically represent all the churches. The fullness of... of, I take it that the issues that Jesus deals with here were real historical situations, but as Jesus comments on them, the seven together, they form a message about his church as a whole. The sorts of situations that we'll face, the sorts of problems and, and the things that we will need to hear in those situations. And so let's have a look. What does Jesus have to say? And, and for time, we'll just focus mainly on uh, this one, the church in Philadelphia. What's going on in Philadelphia? Now, I want you to be detectives with the person next to you. Have a look at chapter 3, 7 to 13. What do you notice? What can you guess about the situation of that church? And I'll point in the right direction. What are the clues that they're suffering? There you go. Take a moment, person next to you. All right, um, that gave me enough time to get a drink. Thanks, sir. But I did want you to look at it. What are the clues that they're suffering? What did you notice? What's in verse 10? Yeah, very good. So they're enduring patiently and, and obediently and keeping his command to do that. But yes, the idea of enduring. Yes, good. What else? Yeah, kept his word, and they've got little strength. Are they worn out? Are they tired from, from, from all the suffering? They, is it saying that they don't have much power in worldly terms? They're not in positions of authority, they're not rich, they're not successful, they're, they're low status? They're, yeah, yeah, good. What else? Yeah, which implies there's, there's pressure to deny Jesus. Yep. Verse 11, they're told to hold on. What about verse 9? Does anyone wonder what's going on with the, the synagogue of Satan, those who claim to be Jews? It seems like there's a community of Jewish people who are in that city opposing these Christians, saying things that aren't true. So they're, they're called liars. They're probably saying that Jesus is, is not the Messiah. Now, this is not a comment on all Jews, of course. Um, this shouldn't need to be said, and, and, but... Given history, just to be very clear, there is no justification in the Bible or out of the Bible for, for anti-Semitism. Christians are not to be anti-Semitic. Jesus was a Jew. Many of the first Christians were Jews as well. They, they recognized that Jesus was the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And as Christians, um, and, 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 and from a not-Jewish background, we've been joined into their promises. And of course, opposition to Christianity can come from many sources. It just so happens that in this city, as a simple matter of history, that the, the Jews there 
who didn't believe in Jesus were opposing the ones who did. They were saying, you're wrong about him. He's not the Messiah. You've abandoned the faith. How can you say that this human was God? There's only one God. He's in heaven. You're not true Jews. But these Jewish Christians, they weren't wrong, were they? Notice notice the start of the letter, verse 7. The words of him who is holy and true. Jesus is the Holy One. That's a title for God. And he's true, he's reliable, he's trustworthy, he's a genuine article. Thirdly, he holds the key of David. What's that? That's apocalyptic imagery. What does it mean? Well, David was the the great king of God's people, the one that God promised would have a descendant who would reign forever in an everlasting kingdom, 2 Samuel 7. Jesus is the one who has the key of that kingdom because he's the descendant of David that was promised. He is the eternal king. And so he's the one with the authority to let people into God's kingdom or to keep them out. If you want to live forever in heaven... Jesus has the key. If he opens the door to you, verse 7 says, no one can shut it. But if he closes the door to you, no one that you know and nothing you do will make any difference at all. You'll be stuck outside forever. He is the one that the Jewish people have been waiting for. And so it's actually the Christians there that were the truest expressions of being Jews. Their opponents... Well, they're actually saying the sorts of things Satan would say. And so there's a situation there in, in, in Philadelphia. They're being persecuted. They're suffering for being Christians. But what effect is it having on them? Is it making them compromise? Well, on the screen, I'll bring up this pattern that you find in the letters. Um, no, no, sorry, the other one. Yeah, this pattern. You find this pattern in all seven letters, except some of them break the pattern. What's missing from this one? You might have to have a look. There's no rebukes, that's right. There's no rebukes and there's no warnings. There's nothing that Jesus calls them to repent from. It's all encouragement. It's quite striking. There's only one other letter like it. It's it's Smyrna in in chapter 2, which um, strikingly is also, it's clear, being persecuted. So what is it, coming back to Philadelphia, what is it that they're doing that Jesus is so pleased with? There's a clue, isn't it, to what's Jesus looking for in his church Because surely if there's any church to be like, it's this one. Well, look at chapter 3, verse 8. We've seen it. I know your deeds. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. If you boil it all down, there it is. If Jesus was to come, in fact, he's here, but what would he be looking for? Do they keep my word? Not just do they teach my word, now, that matters. We, we must not change his word, no matter what pressure comes from who, from society. But it's not just do we teach it. Jesus is looking to see, do we keep it? That is, do we believe it? Do we trust it? Do we obey it? Do we share it? Is that you? Is that us? Pray that it would be. Pray that it would always be. Pray that it would be the case of all the churches on the coast, of, of all the churches in the world. Now, of course, it's none of us perfectly. I take it even the Philadelphian church was full of sinners. And so remember, he forgives. Chapter 1, verse 5, one of my favorite verses, worth highlighting. It talks about Jesus who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He's washed them away. 
And so we don't do it perfectly. But do you want to succeed in life? Do you want to not waste it? Keep his word. That's what matters. That you hold fast to his word, even if it means you're persecuted. Tell you a story about a man named Hugh Lattimore. He he once uh, taught the true gospel of Jesus in a time when in England doing that got you in trouble. And he was actually summoned by the Queen herself. Before going, I don't know if he actually was summoned to visit the Queen or if she just gave the summons. I don't know. But before he went, do you know what he did? He read through the whole New Testament carefully with a friend. Is what I've been saying true? Came to the conclusion, yes it is. And therefore, I can't stop teaching it. Therefore, he was sent to prison. Now, while in prison, he was there for a while, he he read through the New Testament another seven times. Not not an apocalyptic number, an actual seven times. And while in prison, what did he pray? He prayed this, God, help me hold to what's true, even to death. And make the true gospel take root in this land. And so he was put on trial and, and examined again and again. All the way along, he knew exactly where it was headed, to his death. And so he said very little, didn't try to argue, didn't see the point in that. He just simply stated his faith. He stated the truth. And so on the 16th of October, 1555, which is um, next week actually, uh, out they brought Lattimore and one of his Christian friends, Ridley. And they came to the place that they would be burned at the stake. And when they got there, the two men, they, they knelt down and kissed it. Their gate to heaven. They prayed, they spoke to each other, we don't know what they said. They said to the people present, I commit our cause to Almighty God, who will impartially judge all. And they were then chained to the stake in the middle, and wood was piled around them. And as the fire was lit at their feet, Latimer said these words to his friend, they're famous now, Be of good comfort, Brother Ridley, and play the man. Be strong. Be of good comfort, Brother Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And their their prayers were answered, actually. The, the, The candle of the light of the true gospel did spread in England. And to this day, it continues to shine. And in part, it was because of their witness. As the flames leapt higher, they cried out, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Is that a tragedy? No. That's a triumph. To use the word of chapter 3, verse 12, that's what it means to be victorious. To to win at life. Victorious Christian living is nothing more than simply to hold on to Jesus and his word, come what may. Now, it doesn't have to look like it did for Hugh Lattimore. It's also the 90-year-old who, despite all the threats from the pressures and the pleasures of life, dies quietly in her bed, still holding on to Jesus and his word. Triumph. Victory. And so this letter, um, and, and putting them all together, teaches us something profound about what's a real threat to a church to Christianity. What do you think is the greatest threat to the church? Well, you get a clue when you compare all the letters to the churches because another pattern emerges. I'll get the other one up. Here are the seven letters. And what you find is um, 
We've been looking at Philadelphia, and it's all encouragement. Smyrna as well, that's all encouragement. And, and like I mentioned, that one is also suffering. But the first and the last letter, they're the letters where Jesus says, unless something changes, your whole church is in danger of being uprooted. They're in the most serious situation. And then in the middle, you have three that are mixed. A mix, some, sometimes it's... Um, they're doing some things that are good, but also they have some problems. Sometimes it's, there's a group here that they're going well, but then also within the, the church there's a group that's in real danger. Now, first of all, what does that tell you about, the, if this represents you know, all of the churches, what does that tell you about the, the condition of Jesus' churches as a whole? What picture do you get? Well, as a whole, it's not great. Most likely, our church, your ch- every church, is, is mixed. Some, some that are doing quite poorly and are in danger. That's life in this world of sin, even for churches. There's, there's a romantic view out there of the, of the early church. You know, if we could just get back to the, the church as it was in the early days, the good old days, when Christianity was pure, if we could just get back to that, then church would be good again. Well, if you go back to the first century, just a few decades after Jesus, what do you find? It's a mess. It's always been a mess. Now, it's not to say that the mess doesn't matter. The, the constant message of these letters is repent. But until Jesus comes back, there will be problems outside and problems inside. But let me ask you, which is the bigger problem? Which is the bigger threat? It is a challenge to hold on to Christ in a culture that's against us. And it seems like our culture is, is getting more and more against us. But there's a greater challenge, a greater threat, and that is to keep yourself from falling into sin. Look quickly with me at the different dangers, the different rebukes. The first letter, chapter 2, verse 4, they've forgotten love. They're good at truth, verse 2, they don't tolerate false teachings, but they've forgotten love. Is that you? Smyrna, well, there's no rebuke. They're poor, they're afflicted, they're slandered, but they're spiritually rich. But letter 3, Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 14, what's their problem? Well, they're sinning. There's idolatry, verse 14, sexual immorality. They, they may even be following a false teaching that says that sin doesn't matter. Is that you? Letter 4, Thyatira, verse 20, they tolerate a false teacher. Her teachings are damaging the church, but they're not holding to the truth. They're letting the truth be, be distorted. Is that you? Letter 5 to Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1. They're spiritually dead. They seem to be alive, they fake it well, but they're not actually living as Christians from their hearts. Their hearts aren't really following God. Is that you? A letter tonight, Philadelphia, there's no rebuke, a suffering church. And then interestingly, letter 7 to the Laodiceans is the, is the most serious of all, as, as I mentioned. Chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, they're lukewarm. They're half-hearted Christians, and this is the only letter with no encouragement at all. But notice this, this is the church that's rich, verse 17. They're comfortable. I don't need anything, they say. And so now I wonder if we're starting to get a sense of the sort of things Jesus might say, might look for if he was to visit. He'd be looking for, do they hold to my word, which looks like love, fighting sin, concern for truth, spiritually alive and not half-hearted, not self-reliant. 
put it all together, what sense do you get of what's a real threat to a church? Philadelphia faces the threat of persecution. They actually may fall to the pressure. That's why Jesus says to them, hold on. But the persecuted churches actually seem to be doing the best. There's something about being persecuted. Yes, there's a danger that you cave to the pressure. But actually, the pain of it makes you ask, well, why am I doing this? Josh, you want the, the password to the Wi-Fi? Come up on my iPad. Sorry, that broke the mood, didn't it? Um, the pain of persecution makes you ask, why am I doing this? It sends you deeper into the truth. It makes you rely more on him. It grows you. No, what's the greatest threat to a church? What do you think from these letters? Sin, yes, but what circumstance? Being rich, being comfortable, not needing anything, living in Australia. Surely, for most of us, the biggest danger to us as a church is not persecution, but the illusion of safety. Now hear me, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy in itself. In fact, it's far better to be able to buy the food you need and get the medicine you need. That's far better. It's good to be free. It's good to be healthy. It's good to be in peace. Just don't think it's safe. It's physically safe, but it's spiritually dangerous. Brother and sister, remember who you serve. The Lord's Prayer says, pray each day, um, give us our daily bread. But our problem is we don't need to pray that because our cupboards are full of bread. Remember who you serve. Remember the time you live in. Don't be lulled to, sh- to sleep by the gentle waves of a comfortable life. You know, they used to walk to church past tombstones. That would send a message, wouldn't it? I think it's great that we walk to church past a, a cafe. I think that's much nicer. But watch what it does to us. Watch what it might do to you. However, we need to be ready for persecution as well. And let me share something that I think we need to think long and hard about. I do really think that things might be heating up for us as Christians in Australia. We'll, we'll leave that up, actually, um, Matt. Thanks. Um, the way things are going, it might not be long before there are Christians in our country who go to prison simply for holding to Jesus' word. Now, I don't know if I sound like I'm being alarmist, I'd, I'd love to be wrong, but there actually are already in Victoria laws that could do it, that are labelled to make people think that they're aimed at one thing that's very extreme and that no Christian that I know actually wants to do but in the finer details, actually makes it against the law to do many other things, to say other things that Christians have always done and said, even, for example, praying for certain things, even if the person has asked for prayer for that thing. You can go to jail. And New South Wales is talking about bringing out the law. Now, what should we do with that as Christians? Should we try to stop it? Well, yes, if, if we can, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we should pray for those in government so we can live peaceful and godly lives. We've done that I trust tonight. In a democracy, it's right to vote. It's right to speak up. But just don't imagine that um, if it passes the, the law in New South Wales or in, and, and if, if Christians go to prison, just don't imagine that will be the biggest threat to Christianity in Australia. No, materialism, greed, comfort, that's already there. That's the biggest threat. In fact, Christianity could even spread faster. That's what's happening in various times in history under persecution and it continues even today in some places. But if it happens, it will take faith. 
And so let me finish with the three promises that Jesus gives to this suffering church to help them keep going. So that if you ever find yourself in that situation, in danger of losing your job, in danger of losing your family or a friend, in danger of prison, you got this clear, the things that Jesus thought they needed to know, let's hear what he he would say. Three promises. Number one, vindication. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. There will be a great reversal. Their opponents who lied about them will instead come and fall down at their feet. Now, I think that's talking about the the day of judgment when everyone realises, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. They were right. It could be talking about evangelism as well, that um, that Jesus is promising that some in this life will actually come and realise it, even in this life. But if not in this life, certainly on Judgment Day, everyone will see Jesus really is Lord. And so the message to this church and to faithful Christian you is this, the lie about you, that will be temporary, but the truth will stand forever. You don't need to be vindicated in this world. Jesus will vindicate you. Number two, security. He promises them eternal, invincible access to his kingdom. Look at verse 8. He says, see, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Someone I was talking about this yesterday said, what's the point of that? Why would you even have a door if it can't be shut? Has he just taken it off the hinges? Now, that one again could be talking about evangelism. He might be saying, oh, don't worry, you keep going and I'll, I'll open the door in people's hearts and people will enter the kingdom But more than that, I think, in the context of Revelation, this is a promise that they will be saved. The one who has the keys to the kingdom has opened the door. Now, they've got little strength, but he has all power, and he is standing there with his almighty power, using it to hold the doors of heaven open for them, waiting for them. Now, I'm not sure about this. I wonder if some of them are actually in prison. If if not them, then others have been in history. The prison doors, they seem shut, but the door that really matters is already open and no one can shut it. Verse 10, he also promises that he will keep them from the hour of trial. Now, what's that talking about? There's this hour of trial coming. Some people think that that's talking about um, you know, a particular thing, a pandemic. Let's never use that word again. Um, some people think that it's talking about, um, and I think more likely, um, a, a metaphor for, for this entire period of history where things are... are, are so full of of evil and sin and suffering. And so what does it mean, verse 10, I'll keep you from the hour of trial? Some people think it's it's talking about a rapture, that before things get too intense, Jesus will suck these people out of harm's way, like Star Trek. Now, I think there's two reasons um, that, that that's probably not the case. Number one, it would mean that these people have been kind of raptured just randomly in the middle of history because it was a promise to that church at that time. But even more significantly than that, this phrase comes up again in John chapter 17, verse 15, where Jesus says exactly the opposite of a, a suck them out of the world. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, God, not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Exact same Greek word, protect, keep, exact same kind of phrase. And so here I think it's actually saying, not that I'll keep you um, from, as in away from the hour, but rather I'll keep you in, I'll keep hold of you, I'll protect you even in that hour. You've got little strength, 
But his great power will be with you. As you hold on to him, he will be holding on to you. There's security, a door that can't be shut and the power to keep holding. And thirdly, reward. Not just the reward of entering his kingdom, but what you get on arrival. First of all, the reward of honour. Verse 12 and verse 11, the crown and the name. When I was in year six, it was cool to wear surf brands. Now, it's, I don't know, is that, I've lost touch, but I think it's just plain, is that right? Surf brands? Okay, one. <laughs> you should probably reflect on that. <laughs> plain? Someone come tell me later and help me out. Okay. Um, now, um, Mum and Dad, you're here. Oh, I do have a bit of a grudge about this. We, we never had the surf brands, Billabong, Rip Curl, SMP. We, we got to wear the brands that no one had heard of from Best and Less and Lowe's. Now, I loved it. Thank, thanks for the clothes. But Lightning Bolt was not cool. I didn't have the cred, the status that I wanted. That's okay. Because when we get to heaven, we get to wear a new brand. Verse 12, look what Jesus says. I will write on them the name Billabong. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. And I will also write on them my new name, says Jesus. Three brands, all of them connected with the glorious Lord of the universe. He will honor you with his own, the, the weight of his own reputation. Isn't it crazy how much people care about their status, their reputation, the badge on the front of their car, the job title, your name, my, my name. Your great, Dave Jensen said this a few weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, your great-grandkids will struggle to remember your name. If you stand for Jesus, your, your own family, maybe your friends will spit when they think of you, when they say your name, that Christian, but that's temporary. For eternity, you will wear the name that is above every name. But more than that, the reward is God himself. It's to be in his presence. Verse 12, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, apocalyptic language again. But the temple was where you went to be with God. Psalm 84, better is one day in your courts, God, than a thousand elsewhere. And you won't just be allowed to come in. No, you'll be part of the furniture. You'll be permanent, a pillar. And we together will form that new temple. God, together with his people, all the heroes of the faith down through the ages. There you go. Three massive promises of what's coming as we hold fast to his word. Vindication, security, reward. Is it worth it? If, if being a Christian ever does mean you go to prison you lose your job, your family. We need to be willing to do it. Would you? If for some reason a, a policeman or you're, you're before a judge and they ask you something from God's word, do you believe that? And you know it'll land you in jail, what would you say? Yes. It's what the Lord says and so it's what I believe. Now if you think... There's no way I could do that. Well, that's okay. You don't have to be willing now. You just have to be willing then. And so let's pray if the time ever comes, we'll be there. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the salvation that you've won, rescuing us from this hour of trial. We thank you for the power you give us. Our strength indeed is small. We are children of weakness. 
And so we pray that we will always remember that and depend on you, not get comfortable in the riches that we enjoy. And if the hour of trial does come, I pray that we'll hold fast to your word, fight sin, stand for what's true, not get complacent, proclaim it to a dying world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.